Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber Podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com. All right. Thank you for joining us for our Recovery and Resiliency Roundtable here at the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. I'm Chris Clark, President and CEO of the Chamber, and this is a resource that we bring you each week to give you more insights and uh, the economic recovery, how your business can learn, can grow, and quite frankly, lay a foundation for a more resilient future as we move through this recession and into the new Georgia economy. We've got a great discussion planned for you today, but before we jump into it, I want to give you a few updates on a completely, totally different topic. I want to remind you that we do have a golf tournament scheduled for Monday. We've got a couple of spots open for that. And I know some of you really want to get outside right now. So please reach out to us, let us know. We'll see if we can get you out there with us. Our next roundtable coming up is September 2nd. It's on freight and logistics, an important issue for the state of Georgia, particularly as we move out of this recession. Um, And then on September 9th, we're going to have the CEOs of our major industries, utility companies in Georgia to talk about uh, what what's happened with the energy sector during the pandemic and what it's going to look like as we move out of it. We'll talk about, about Plant Vogel. We'll also talk about solar energy, energy in Georgia and a really great discussion. And then I really want to encourage you to join us September 21st through the 24th for our Washington, D.C. fly-in. Senator Perdue, Leffler, and a variety of members of our congressional delegation have all confirmed to be with us over those four days. We'll take about two hours a day uh, over those four days to bring you the latest on recovery, resiliency. We'll also have deeper dives and discussions on the impact of Russia, uh, uh, China, and international partners around the world and what's happening globally. So a lot going on. I also want to encourage you to continue to go to our gachamber.com slash COVID-19.com webpage. Uh, Guys, we're giving you the latest updates from the CDC, from Governor Kemp, uh, best practices. Uh, You can also find our unified standards information there about training for your employees to make sure that they're COVID ready and COVID prepared. And then lastly, I'm excited to tell you that please remind you that all of our roundtables and town halls are also available on our podcast that you can now get on Spotify and on Apple Podcast as well. So kind of interesting discussion today on the role of cybersecurity. And I'll I'll tell you, when we talk about resiliency, this is the key sector, right? Uh, We know cybersecurity investment is going to grow by 70% over the next three to four years. A study of global CEOs just this weekend said they were asked, what are your top three concerns? What do you think are the three biggest risks for the economy as we move into 2021? They said lingering pandemic, environmental concerns, and cybersecurity. And just so you don't think it's all about the large companies, it impacts every small business, every church, every city, county government, and our hospitals every day. So today, to kind of give you a better insight of what your company can do and what the world looks like around cybersecurity, we have Bess Henson, who's partner and chair of cybersecurity and privacy practice at Morris, Manning, and Martin. Uh, We have Paul Farley, who is Deputy uh, Chief Information Security Officer at our friends down the street here at NCR. And we have Amit Gundry, who's the Cybersecurity Managing Director at Deloitte. And I'll tell you, you know, and I want to thank Deloitte. They have been critical partners for us 
in putting together our resiliency and recovery task force, helping manage that and building out our agenda that we'll take to the Georgia General Assembly here over the next couple of months, uh, giving them recommendations about how to help Georgia businesses and the Georgia economy thrive. So what I'd love to do is to just jump in here and Bess, let you get us started. Give us your perspective on, on what the world looks like right now with cyber uh, and what businesses need to be thinking about. And, and Bess, thanks for joining us. Sure, it's great to be with you today, Chris. Um, over recent months, our Georgia companies, large and small, as well as professional firms, um, employees and consumers have increasingly relied on home networks, virtual workspaces, video conferencing, and all forms of remote work practices, which we have experienced in our day-to-day -day over the past several months. Um, as a result of this shift for all of us, it has opened the door to new um, and increasing cybersecurity concerns. Uh, phishing emails more than quadrupled in March of 2020, right as everyone was moving to remote work. Um, and truly, these cyber criminals are using uh, the outbreak and the shift to remote work to their advantage. Um, most recently, I have seen uh, attacks mostly around ransomware, extortion threats, continued focus on accounts receivables departments, accounting departments, which we saw those attacks before, but it's really a, a, a sharp target for the cyber criminal to get in the middle of transactions and to get access to money, particularly if they um, get a hold of your data that's crucial to your business. Um, you know, as a part of the shift, we're also seeing the collection and creation of new repositories of data that did not exist before, right? Not only are we collecting more personal information about some of our employees, including their health status, right, which is sensitive information and can be protected under certain laws, um, depending on the context of its collection, um, but by virtue of needing to track the use of personal devices, um, and, and our employees who are working remotely, it, it just makes cyber and data privacy best practices critically important during this time. Um, and also going forward, as we do expect more of the workforce to remain at home in the coming years. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had several federal and state agencies issue warnings. Uh, we continue to see those alerts and warnings coming from uh, federal and state agencies, including uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Cyber uh, Security Infrastructure Security Agency, um, other countries uh, with whom we do business, such as the United Kingdom's National Cyber Security Center, have also issued alerts, sometimes in cooperation and jointly with DHS. Um, so those are very important to stay on top of. Uh, particularly your uh, security professionals in your organization should monitor those alerts. We've also seen uh, individual state regulators issue specific notices to particular industries. So earlier this year, the New York Department of Financial Services, which regulates financial services companies um, that do business in New York, specifically requested that virtual currency businesses provide assurances of their plans to address and respond to COVID-19, including cybersecurity risks specific to COVID-19, which is quite unusual, right? Um, you have an industry-specific 
regulator that says, hey, we really see um, a vulnerability here. You know, if cyber criminals were to take advantage of the situation and steal virtual currency, for example. So that, that's just um, one example of that situation. We've also um, heard of guidance uh, being issued by the SEC chairman who has said that uh, companies that are public should in fact provide investors with some insight into how cyber risk um, or their cyber risk profile might change as a result of the work from home situation and um, new attacks by cyber criminals who are trying to take advantage of our circumstances during the pandemic. Um, so what are some steps that your business can take to address these concerns? I'm confident that uh, my co-panelists will get into these uh, best practices and recommendations as well, particularly as we work through the Q&A later on in our presentation. But, uh, you know, there, there is a lot that your employees, a lot of information that your employees are processing right now, right? Not only are they trying to manage their home lives and um, childcare and keeping up with work, um, you know, the last thing you may want to do or want to think about doing is in fact issuing new training, right? Or reminders about phishing emails. You may think, well, this is, should be a low priority on the totem pole that we're, uh, of priorities at this time. Um, you know, I urge you to stay on top of your training and notifications sent to your employees to be aware. Um, there are some unique challenges and risks that now present themselves because employees are working from home and, and concerns that we've not always thought about when we've been able to manage our employees in one physical location, right? Um, so, you know, keep in mind your accounting department employees are likely targets. Those are the ones whose password credentials have to be changed frequently. You know, you should be sort of logging access um, to their, their accounts to make sure that you understand whether or not authorizations and, or logins to their accounts have been authorized or are coming from an authorized location, right? One of the um, some of the evidence that we look at when there is in fact unauthorized access or there's been an attack, right, is looking at um, the traffic, the logins, the IP addresses, where are they from, right? Is Did uh, our accounting um, professional log in from Atlanta, Georgia, where she might have her home, or did this accounting professional log in um, from another country, right, which is probably going to be suspect because no one's traveling right now. <laughs> Or, f or fewer people are traveling and your employee certainly is not. And so that's, that's very important to um, keep track of, of monitoring um, the credentials and, and various logins. Uh, the other thing I'd advise you of is um, to encourage employees to turn off their smart speakers, advise them not to download or transfer company information to personal devices. You know, if the internet goes down at their home, they might be tempted to take a document they were working on and send it through their personal email. Encourage them not to do that. Uh, prohibit that. Block access to their email and they're logged into the VPN if possible. Um, let them know they should not be utilizing third-party cloud storage options unless that's a part of your, your policy. I, I hope it's not, but, but you want to be able to remind them that they should not be using personal accounts at home. Um, continue to advise them not to um, 
keep information that's unnecessary, right? So if you have employees that answer calls from customers and a customer might be giving them some personal information or sensitive personal information um, that ordinarily you might have control over how that employee uh, discards that information at the end of the workday, right? If they're taking notes at home and they have some sensitive personal information written down, you need to advise them on best practices to destroy that information in their home office, in their home workplace. Um, so other than that, I know I'm probably going past my time here for introductory remarks. I've worked with a lot of companies who are responding to security incidents right now. Um, managing a security incident requires input from your security team, your IT professionals, your leadership. And oftentimes the management of that incident can take place or has taken place in the past at your physical workplace. Um, now we're trying to manage these high stress crisis situations remotely and it presents new challenges. And so just as we all had to figure out the plan of how to work from home when we um, moved to a more remote workplace earlier this year, think about how you would operate if you were to have a security incident. Do you have the phone number to call? Do you have the experts lined up that you would need? Do you know if they're available? How would you work remotely? Um, you know, my experience is, of course, through calls and Zoom, another uh, video conferencing methods. But try and think about that beforehand, um, before you have a critical um, security incident during this time period. Cool. Thank you, Bess. I appreciate that. that a, we've covered a lot right there. But I think it's unique that you're, you know, the perspective you bring to this, obviously, is providing legal advice and helping lots of different companies do it. I, want to, I do have a legal question for you in a minute, but I want to go on to Paul right now who's looking at it from kind of that corporate infrastructure standpoint, and, and you're looking at it a little bit differently than, the, than, than what Bess is doing. So, Paul, tell us what you're seeing and how NCR has responded and what the world of cybersecurity looks like right now to you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Chris. I, I agree with a lot of what, what Bess threw out there, and I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into that in, in the Q&A. Um, and I'm, I'm really going to take this from, from two perspectives, uh, both as a cybersecurity practitioner, as well as um, to tell people a little bit about NCR, uh, because it's really relevant to how we faced in the pandemic. Um, now, a lot of people think they know NCR. We've been around for 130-something years. And uh, so they say, isn't that national cash register? Don't you make cash registers? Um, the answer is we do. We now call them point of sales. Um, but um, really, our, our job is to keep customers running. Um, and we're digital first, but not digital only. So we have software and hardware and services that stitch all that together. And so significant portions of our business are um, uh, as a service base and uh, had already kind of gone through that digital transformation. And then other portions are very much about shipping equipment or delivering something to a customer physically. And so when, when this happened, um, we found two things. We went through the, the same things that every company has had to go through of how do we distribute um, office workers that work predominantly from a PC or laptop uh, to their homes, which in some ways was the easy uh, solution, uh, 
Uh, and then we also have engineering staff that work with physical gear that uh, are building things. And we had to make arrangements for them to have access to a lab or to put labs in people's homes. Uh, so technically that was a little bit more complicated. Uh, but where we really saw the opportunities, and that's on the NCR company operation, where we really saw the opportunity was to do outreach to our customers to help them. Because as we've seen the explosion of um, ordering a menu from your phone, um, or the delivery apps, either uh, a particular restaurant's uh, own application or one of the delivery services. You know, NCR has a lot of middleware that's behind those applications, either the entire application or the application interfaces somewhere along the line uh, for NCR to facilitate that transaction. And so it really accelerated our company uh, need to help our customers uh, ensure they can operate or give them a new operating model. Uh, we have a lot of uh, contact with restaurants, for instance, that had never had an app before, never needed an app before, and all of a sudden now they really needed one so that uh, they could do delivery or people could do curbside pickup. So it's, it's changed some business models, and I'm proud to say that, that NCR has been able to come alongside our customers and, and help them with that. Um, because we, at, at the end of the day, we want to make uh, transaction as simple as possible for our customers. That, that's really, that's kind of a tagline over, uh, over everything is, is, you know, we're trying to make the simple possible. And, um, so NCR is headquartered here in Atlanta, we're proud to say. We have about 45,000 employees. Um, and we operate in 160 countries um, globally. So we have a pretty big footprint. And so when this happened, um, you know, we, we had to be very thoughtful on how to scale some of the solutions. Um, you know, as we've taken care of our employees and we've looked, so I'll, I'll pivot a little bit more to the cyber specific stuff, um, you know, what this is really driven is a need to go into the home with cyber recommendations. So um, things like uh, most people would assume that you should have a router of some sort, some device in your home that all of your computers are behind. Well, not everybody knows that uh, globally. Not everybody knows that. Some people take a connection that comes right from their landlord and plug it in. And that could be very safe or that could be directly connected to the internet. Um, so some of the security awareness that Bess was talking about, about you know how people need to be thoughtful uh, in their home, you, you really need to do that. You need to help people understand their part because that's the wedge that criminals and uh, uh, their ilk are, are trying to, to leverage. You know, and uh, we have seen a massive increase in, in phishing, which of course is an email trying to get you to disclose information or install something on your machine unbeknownst to you, looking like something else. And um, 
huge volume. Our tools are handling it well. Our security tools, thankfully, are not passing all of that volume through. Uh, they're, they're stopping that. But as with any crisis or kind of world event, criminals take advantage of lures that are topical. So right now, COVID or vaccines or where to find a COVID test. Um, or, you know, the latest regulation or really anything you see in the news is fair game. Um, and that's alluded to it a little bit. Um, some of the processes that you have that people have really relied on being physically present to where they could look to somebody else and say, hey, does this look right to you? Um, that, that there's a breakdown. That, that's harder. They have to you know, they, they can't just ask the person at the desk next to them. And so you really need to help them understand what resources inside your company can they reach out to for questions um, and encourage them to do so, even if it's a dumb question, right? Um, if I could count the number of dumb questions that have turned out to be a real security issue, um, I don't think I can count that high. So, um, you know, you, you really need to encourage them and educate them. Uh, they want to do the right thing. Uh, many times they just don't know how. Uh, you know, some companies have had an easier time going to a remote model because they are heavy users of cloud services, whether, you know, cloud security controls that, uh, that they are easily scaled. Um, companies that have been very dependent on all of the infrastructure for their IT infrastructures in their office have been more challenged with this because that involves ordering more servers or appliances or gear that has to be installed, purchasing more licenses. So I think we've, we've seen um, really a, a rush to uh, some folks who maybe were holding back on, on going to the cloud and going to some of these uh, software as a service offerings have, have been forced that way and are now reimagining how they do their IT operations. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll point out that um, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't is a lot of companies, especially small companies, uh, are getting hit because they didn't have, that uh, they issued employees desktops, for instance, and not laptops. So when they sent everybody home, they said, well, use the PC that you have at home and connect back into the company to do your work. And sometimes some of that is not uh, well thought through from a security control perspective, and that's opened up uh, avenues that criminals can get into the systems at the office that are sitting there waiting for connections from the internet, um, and that's caused problems. So if, uh, if your company is struggling with that or needs help with that, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that can do it. Please reach out and get professional assistance with that. So with that, I'll, I'll pass it back to you, Chris. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate the support that you guys have given for the, the hospitality industry that's struggled so much over the last few months. And it's remarkable. I, it didn't even occur to me. So last night, my wife and I yesterday afternoon stopped by to have appetizers and a cocktail at a new restaurant that opened. And we sat down, there was a QR code on the table. And we're like, where are our menus? And the waiter said, 
you use your phone, take a picture, and there's the menu. And he goes, it saves us. It's say, you know, it's it's healthier, right? But also, he says our menu updates, our beer list updates, our wine list. We don't have to print stuff out over the time. So in the long term, it's saving them money, but also allows them to be more responsive. So thank you guys for for your help in that area. It's our pleasure. We're here for our customers. Absolutely. So Amit, so you're helping companies all over the world try to maneuver through this pandemic. So now, if NCR is not a client, I'm sure they're on the they're on the target list. So I'm curious, you know, what are you telling? What are you hearing from your clients right now? What advice are you giving them? Absolutely, Chris. So first of all, good morning, everyone, and and great discussion thus far on uh, things that we are seeing and the future of cyber. Uh, before before I begin, Chris, many thanks to you and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce for organizing this event. Uh, I believe it is uh, imperative that uh, we continue to have more discussions on the topic of cybersecurity and, and use forums such as these to raise awareness on cyber. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, you know, Paul uh, and Bess covered some very interesting points. And I just want to build up upon that conversation. Uh, going with the, the theme of today's discussion, uh, one thing that we are seeing quite a bit now, uh, given all the lessons learned with the pandemic, is a focus on cyber resiliency. Um, if, I, if I go back to uh, some of these survey studies that we've done in the past, uh, Deloitte Nasio cybersecurity study as an example, um, and also some of the recent conversations with state CISOs, uh, we have seen that, uh, always seen that securing a healthy cyber budget continues to be a challenge even today. Um, and other areas of concern uh, from the study include cyber talent, and increased sophistication of cyber attacks. So all of this matters because you know, we have experienced a number of these challenges um, result in uh, difficulties in actually implementing appropriate cyber controls during the time of the pandemic. But as we, as we think forward, right, as post-pandemic recovery measures ramp up, uh, we also feel that uh, cyber leaders are presented with an opportunity. Uh, to strategize and collaborate with business stakeholders uh, to have security built in their future plans opposed to an afterthought. So the challenge of having um, a cyber budget to not handle things can be solved, or at least uh, the right steps can be taken uh, in the future, given all the lessons learned that we have. Uh, it's also an excellent chance to demonstrate that uh, security is an enabling function uh, and must have for a resilient organization. Um, one thing I, I believe um, organizations can do is, uh, as, especially the cyber leaders, is work with business stakeholders more. Uh, communicate that cyber resilience is not a destination, but also a journey that will require continuous maturity and innovation. Um, and to be a resilient organization, um, the, the real requirement is to move away from uh, a checklist-based approach, which we have seen in the past happen with cyber, uh, to more critical thinking on security. Uh, and the answers uh, to which will influence future decisions for us. Uh, to guide a conversation around cyber resiliency, um, what, what we recommend is to break it really down into uh, three parts. Uh, one is respond. Uh, recover and then thrive. What we have seen is obviously many organizations have been focused on responding 
um, to, uh, to what the pandemic has done from a cyber perspective. They've been focused on stopping the bleeding. Um, examples include, as, uh, as Paul and Bess mentioned, uh, several uh, rapid adoptions of cyber capabilities such as uh, MFA as a service or endpoint protection capabilities have been taken uh, into consideration. Uh, there, there has also been uh, a rapid adoption of cloud workloads to address scaling requirements. Um, but as we move away from the phase of responding to recovery, we are no longer reacting, but in fact reinventing. Uh, we are moving away from an unpredictable state, which we are in, uh, to an interim normal state. And we are away, moving away from a contingency planning to a scenario planning situation. Uh, and then finally, thriving gets us to a point of answering what the next normal should be and what cyber capabilities will improve our defenses against future cyber attacks in the next new normal. So it's important for um, you know, our cyber leaders um, to start thinking that way uh, so that they're able to acquire the necessary support uh, for cyber going forward and are more aligned with, with the business. Um, you know, couple of examples that I have seen um, in, in my interactions with uh, my clients in this space um, that, that I think would require a little bit more attention as future strategies are defined. Uh, one is a focus on organizational boundaries. You know, without a doubt, uh, the widespread scramble to accommodate remote work has increased the attack surface to unprecedented proportions. And if you think about uh, an organization's boundary now, it expands beyond the known infrastructure boundaries to personal workspaces of employees, staff as they work remotely. And that's where privacy also come in, comes into play, right? Uh, we, we have to figure out how we're going to secure those, those uh, extended boundaries without uh, stepping over uh, people's personal privacy uh, concerns. Uh, in addition, in the face of uh, the pandemic, many organizations have had to onboard contractors, third-party organizations to provide additional support, further expanding access to organizational resources, thereby expanding the boundaries. So one thing I would recommend as, as, as folks look, look at the future is, is what does the new boundary look like? And that is probably one of the most foundational steps to consider in a future state strategy. Um, and then I believe Bess is alluded to the fact that attention to the operations model is important, the cyber operations model, right? Um, if you think about it, there are several questions that come to mind here uh, as we start thinking about what the future state operate model would look like. Does the cyber operate model scale with an expanded organizational footprint, right? Uh, are your security operation capabilities distributed enough? Uh, locations, service providers, to support you in, in the time of a crisis? And how rapidly does your model scale to changing demands? And, and this is this last point, how rapidly is extremely important because we saw the need for uh, more vigilance, more resilience uh, in cyber as the boundaries change. Um, and then finally on, on operating, operating models, if there is a heavy reliance on third parties, right? Are those third parties really capable of supporting you in the time of a crisis? So all of these matter as folks start thinking about uh, the future of cyber and really looking at their um, the cyber plans and strategy for the future. And the last but not least is really cyber talent, right? 
one of the biggest things uh, from an impact perspective has happened here is that there is a there is a change to the the social contract that we have uh, that that social contract during the pandemic really uh, the exemptions around way things are have changed and that social contract has been rewritten uh, for example in the future remote work may be more productive for the organization and more desirable for employees and and honestly the the standard of how where and when we work is changing so this is one area that cyber leaders need to start thinking about more on how are they going to continue to uh, build cyber talent and accommodate the the new changes uh, with the new social contract as they plan for the future so you know these are some of the things that we have seen uh, chris and in summary i really think uh, this is now is the time if, if cyber leaders want to change the game on cyber align better with business uh, and thrive in the next new normal. These are just some, a few things that uh, have to be done. Thanks, Amit. I appreciate it. I want to start with you with a question. I'm going to ask, I'll go Paul and then Bess, and then I want to ask all of you, and I'll go ahead and give you a tip off of the, the last question, which will be from a policy standpoint, are there things that we could advocate at the federal or the state level to make us more uh, supportive of businesses and to be more cyber secure? So that'll be my last question, but um, I mean, you mentioned the the talent issue here, and I'm I'm more curious. We've had a lot of conversations in the last year and a half on the incredible growth and in demand for cyber professionals as a growing sector. We've seen some high schools in Georgia actually implement programs where um, these kids that might have dropped out, they're D students, they literally are graduating with a hundred percent job security from moving into cybersecurity because they've got their credentials at that level. Tell me what you see as the, the, what the talent pipeline looks like, what the needs are, uh, what could we be doing to make sure more people are going into this field? Yeah, I think the, the need is there, right? And unfortunately, um, the uh, headline is that there's not enough cyber professionals out there. Um, you know, to, to solve this problem, it's, it's a difficult one to solve, but, you know, it requires uh, some investment, right? And it requires responsible organizations really to, be willing to invest in building a community of cyber professionals uh, while acknowledging the, my, my points before, which is changing to the social contract that's happening in parallel. Um, so, you know, in addition to that, I think uh, collaboration, collaborating with other, uh, from a cybersecurity community perspective is also important to continue to grow that talent, right? It's no longer about, well, here's the best resume out there, right? It's, it's about getting to the, uh, to the people, making sure that we grow and groom people along the way to make sure that they're capable of uh, delivering to the cyber needs. So it requires quite a bit of investment. Um, as an example, you know, at Deloitte, we do uh, a lot of trainings at the uh, local high school level, uh, college level, um, and, and we, we participate in the community. And, and what we have seen is uh, a good amount of success with uh, getting more cyber, more people interested in the topic of cyber and then making that as a career path. Um, another thing I would say is, um, you know, the use of perhaps uh, cognitive technologies in, in combination with cybersecurity professionals. So the, the point there is, you know, how can we better uh, automate certain aspects of cyber while, uh, you know, getting professionals our talent more focused on 
things that require more strategic thinking. Um, and I, I think, you know, areas such as, uh, you know, the, with, the cloud, with the cloud adoption, uh, some of that is happening. However, we still have some room for improvement and, and that just requires a little bit more thought towards uh, innovation and uh, how we can uh, accomplish that with some, um, uh, in parallel with grooming cyber profession. That's great. Thank, thank you, Matt. I wanna, let's switch gears. Paul, you know, it struck me as you were talking about your, your clients and your customers that so many of them are small businesses, right? You know, and a lot of them don't think I'm a small business. Nobody's going to bother me. I just asked my IT guy. We had 4,000 threats last month here at the Georgia Chamber. Um, and I remember a program we did last year where we brought in some cyber folks to meet with small businesses. And they were at, and the questions were as basic as, should I change my passwords more than once a year? You know, so if I'm a small business person or even a nonprofit and I don't have access to all the support networks and the resources that a, you know, a large company does, you know, what, how can I even protect my customer data? I mean, what are the basics for us? I mean, we've talked about some general stuff with our staff, but I'm curious what advice do you have? I mean, who's out there to help these small businesses and what can they do? Yeah, that, that's a great, uh, question, Chris, and I know a lot of folks struggle with it, and, and uh, I actually think it ties into the talent pipeline question of, um, you know, a, a, a lot of us, I'm not going to say that I'm old, but a lot of us that, that came up before this was a really well-defined space, um, you know, the, the, there wasn't a straight track into cyber. We were, uh, might have just been the person that was standing there that was like, here, uh, go figure this out. I don't know what this means. And, um, you know, that, that's very much the experience in small and mid-sized businesses is um, somebody with an aptitude is probably going to be the point person. It could be anywhere from the administrative assistant to, uh, you know, that intern that uh, seemed to have a knack for computer stuff that, that got hired part-time. Uh, there are a number of companies that provide virtual CISO services, and I would really encourage uh, looking at that because you get somebody who uh, has experience and understands kind of the, the full gamut of, of the, the cybersecurity space um, kind of on a fractional basis. So that's, that's one thing to look at from a leadership because it is hard to know who to believe. Um, you know, people uh, knock on my door all day long uh, telling me that their solution really is going to fix this problem. And, um, you know, it's uh, people processing technology. It always has been and always will be. And um, there's always something else around, around the corner. Um, most of the things that people need to do to be secure um, that they already know, they just don't know that they know it. And I would, I would draw the analogy to, um, for those that are parents, if you think about, you know, do you teach your children not to get in a stranger's car or to be aware when they're walking down the street and maybe don't take the shortcut through the dark alley. Um, all of those are risk decisions. Those are, uh, giving them clues on how to pay attention to things, how to be aware. And if something doesn't seem right, 
then it probably isn't right. And uh, be careful, get help. Um, you know, uh, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, I would say a, a, a few things. And so aside from uh, just that general awareness, I would say every single place that you have the capability to turn on multi-factor authentication, or sometimes people will say dual-factor authentication, um, do that. Most email providers uh, offer that, um, and that's where you use your password and something else to log in. That stops a tremendous amount. Um, the length of passwords uh, is more important than the complexity. So if you have a sentence, it can have spaces in it. It can be, you know, I love the Georgia Chamber, right, period. That is a much stronger password than an eight-character thing that you have a hard time remembering, and every time you get a type it, you think, oh, not again. Um, get a password safe. Um, you know, there's a number of consumer products out there that provide this, and then you can generate a password for every single site you need and not repeat them. A huge challenge and um, something that I'm not going to ask for people to raise their hands, uh, but I bet the majority of people would raise their hands, that they share the same password or at least uh, a big portion of that across a lot of the sites they use on the internet. And that really, really is dangerous because if you look at the sites on the internet that are the most popular, there's about 20 that everybody goes to in some form or fashion. And so what the criminals do is if they get a password, they take it and they throw it against those 20 sites, they have a pretty good shot of getting um, a number of successful uh, compromises. And if they get into your email, they can reset passwords for your company, for your bank, for, I mean, everything, right? So. Um, really important, turn on that multi-factor authentication so that it's not just on your password. Um, make your password a little bit longer. Don't share your password between the sites. And then pay attention. If somebody's calling you and or sending you an email and what they say doesn't sound true, say, hey, what's the number I can call you back? Or go look up in a, in a trusted directory um, that organization's number, call their main number back uh, before you interact with them. These are the kind of things that, um, you know, or, or, or go to somebody that you know. Everybody has um, uh, a friend or family who's in you know, cybersecurity nowadays, it seems. Ask them. They'll, they'll tell you some similar things maybe that are uh, relevant to your particular situation. Uh, most people in this business that I know are very passionate about it and um, really want to help educate. Thank you, Paul. That was a lot of great information. I was taking notes here about changing my passwords. And the other thing, too, is to change your passwords more frequently, too, right? Update them and don't, don't let them get, get stale. Bess, I've had several people text me literally while we're talking, and they all want me to ask you this question in some form or another. Uh, to put your, your legal hat on for a minute. You know, if you are attacked and you don't have the right protocols in place and somebody steals your customer data, they steal your customer's 
you know, financial information. What does that look like from a legal consideration? I mean, what, what kind of legal issues are out there that folks need to be worried about uh, that they might not even realize that they're, um, you know, they're open to? Sure. So there are a variety of legal issues. Um, you know, to start with, if you're a service provider business, meaning that you're offering services to other enterprise businesses, your B2B as opposed to B2C, right? Um, you have a contract, right, with your customers. And within that contract, you have likely um, made certain representations regarding how you will secure information that is entrusted to you about that other business, right? And so uh, one of the things I would be very concerned about, uh, this is probably advice for more mid-sized to smaller businesses, is do you have information about your customers' businesses backed up, right? Do you have copies of it? Are you backing it up? That issue of backup is one that's sometimes expensive for businesses, right, to, to have copies. But if you were subject to a ransomware attack or if your data were held hostage, right, how would you keep conti you know, continue to provide services to your customers if you weren't able to access that data? That's an issue um, that's very important. Um, you know, other issues that are of concern outside of your contractual agreement with your customer is there are separate obligations, um, both here in the state of Georgia and other states as well, which relate to um, any data security incident that uh, results in unauthorized access or acquisition to protected personal information. Now, I say protected personal information or personal information, it's a legal term of art. It's a certain subset of data that we hold either about individuals, about our customers, um, that different states have said, you know, these are the crown jewels. If a threat actor gets a hold of those, then you business have regulatory obligations to notify um, the individuals who were impacted, right? And so what I'm talking about is what we all fear, the big data breach, which we read about in the news, and, and we have to then provide um, identity theft monitoring to affected individuals or persons, right? So one of the, the points I want to make on this call is that when an event like that occurs, such that you have payment card information of your customers or other individuals that is compromised, when you have social security numbers of your employees, I mean, think about your, your HR team, your accounting department, if they're you know, they have likely bank account information somewhere, um, hopefully in an encrypted form, but they might have, you know, input um, direct deposit information about your employees into a third party that you're, software that you're utilizing to pay your employees, right? Make sure that your HR professional or accounting professional who has access to that information has deleted it from their inbox or that it's in an encrypted form, that it's not lingering anywhere that could be accessed by a threat actor, right? Because one of the one type of data breach or data security incident that can occur is one that not only impacts your customers, but one that impacts your employees. And it would be terrible right now to have an incident that impacts your employees or, you know, God forbid that, um, you know, 
we're still in the situation and, and money has been stolen by, from them or their, their paychecks are rerouted to another bank account, right? Because a fraudster got a hold of that direct deposit information, which that happens. But you would have obligations vis-a-vis -vis your employees as well under these state laws, depending upon where your employees sit. So I, I hope that's helpful. But the point I want to make is that when you have breaches or security incidents that touch um, that protected information, there are certain steps that you have to go through in order to address your regulatory notification obligations. Um, one, I'd recommend you need to call a lawyer because, because any investigation that you um, carry out, ideally all steps all actions, as soon as you discover there might be an incident, would be covered under the attorney-client privilege. Um, I recognize that some of you may not be able to um, engage a lawyer for that purpose, but, but if you're going, going to have to engage a lawyer down the road, go ahead and engage them up front just so you can have the work product that's produced from the investigation and conversations about that incident covered under the privilege. You may have to hire a third party to conduct a computer forensic investigation to determine exactly how that threat actor got in, what they had access to. Usually early on when you discover an incident, you don't know exactly what data or personal information that threat actor gained access to or acquired as a result of that incident. Um, sometimes we have to go through documents and look at them and say, oh, well, in this employee's inbox, they perform a role where we thought they wouldn't have any protected personal information, but in fact they do, or they scanned their passport and emailed it to themselves, right, which is not a good um, I, government identifier to have in your in a compromised email inbox, right, but, but that would require notice. And so those computer forensic investigations get to be very expensive, and then you potentially have to notify parties or announce this publicly. The point being, right now is not a good time to have to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a cybersecurity incident. Um, so think about having in place a cyber liability insurance policy if you do not have one. These are becoming more affordable and accessible to smaller and medium-sized businesses. Uh, oftentimes you can add them to business insurance you already have in place. Uh, other larger, more sophisticated, mature companies and businesses obviously um, need more coverage, uh, but that's something to think about because this, the cost for the services I just identified, including the cost for a lawyer like myself, can be covered by those policies. That's great advice, too. We just did that here at the Georgia Chamber this year, and I was worried about how much it was going to cost us, and it was such a small amount of money for what the benefit has been, and so that, that's great advice. All right, we're, we've really gone over time, but I really want to give you all, you know, 30, 60 seconds here. Um, any, if you were governor for the day or a legislator or a king for the day or, or president, what policy change would you do to uh, help us be more cyber secure? Bess, I'll start with you. Go to Paul and then end with Amit. Sure. So I think there is a big misunderstanding or misconception about cyber attacks that's out there. Um, we need to start at the premise that cybersecurity is really a national security issue. Um, more, more likely than not, 
an attack that an American ex, um, business experiences or a Georgia business experiences is from uh, sort of an organized criminal group of cyber attackers that is located outside of the United States, right? Um, this is an issue that uh, the FBI and other government agencies are very focused on um, other countries and criminals are looking to gain access to American wealth, right? And so our policymakers need to understand that. And in my view, um, pass legislation that incentivizes businesses to proactively implement cybersecurity controls, policies and procedures in, su in such a way that you know, it might seem like a burden initially to our businesses, but if we can rely upon that to help protect the information and the, the money that our businesses are, are earning, right, um, and also use that to defend ourselves as businesses in the event that we have an attack that's coming from another country or from an organized criminal ring, that would really um, help us right, to get where we need to be in terms of our uh, maturity level when we think about cybersecurity and investing um, in the infrastructure that it will, in fact, require of our businesses. That's a great recommendation. Thank you, Bess. I'm, I made a note. That's going on our agenda. Uh, Paul, what about you? So a, a couple things. Um, I'll, I'll make two points. One, the vast majority of uh, breaches start with email. So if you had to pay attention to one area, pay really close attention to email because uh, upwards of 90% of security incidents start with email that lands. So, and they're hard. It's not a judgment of people that click, um, but this is really an area to, to put some focus on. Um, the other is if you're a victim of uh, wire fraud or you wire some money somewhere, um, there, there is a way that that can be clawed back and you actually, I want to put this out here because a lot of people don't know, you can go to the Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3, the number three, dot gov, and kick off the process and uh, a lot of times they can stop that before it gets all the way through the financial system and get your money back. I have a nonprofit that I'm a member of that recently got hit by this and the person was embarrassed that they got tricked, and so they didn't tell us for 30 days. If they could have gotten to us within about the first 48 hours or so, um, high likelihood we could have stopped it and gotten it back, unfortunately. So those are two just, um, and then as, as to the, uh, the, the question about you know, the, the public-private partnership, um, there's organizations currently that, that uh, seek to foster this relationship. I think one area, um, we, we do need a national data privacy law. Uh, right now we have a patchwork of laws across uh, the nation and it, it really makes it challenging and quite burdensome to figure out um, how do you stay in compliance with that? How do you ensure that you're aligned with the right statutes? Um, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I, I am the primary incident responder for my company, and so this is a constant conversation of, okay, what, what applies here? What do we have to worry about? And so I think there's, there's good intentions on all sides to do this. There's some differences in maybe how we should approach it, and um, we can't let the government do this by themselves. 
because as well-meaning as they are, they have a completely different lens that they are looking through than the private sector. So we really have to come alongside and do this together in a public-private partnership. That's great advice, Paul. Thank you. Uh, Amit, thank you for being with us today. What's your recommendation? Yeah, I think, uh, Chris, you know, think about it, right? The cyber community really needs to be uh, a little bit more coordinated to be better prepared to fight cyber attacks, right? Uh, cyber attacks are getting more sophisticated. Um, and I think they are, they are a little bit more coordinated than, than we are. Um, and I think, you know, my experience is that um, with, with cyber incidents that we see, a lot of the things come down to certain basics, right? And there is not enough um, funding to address some of the basic cyber-related controls that need to be in. Uh, so, you know, my advice would be in that case is policymakers start thinking about how to make cyber funding more accessible. Uh, we can't wait, right? It has, we have to be a little bit more agile in the way we distribute that funding. Um, and maybe um, an idea could be that it is a mandate that as uh, organizations uh, put in a request for business funding for business transformation, cyber is simply built in, right? It, it is not a nice to have anymore, it has to be a must have. So I would, I would encourage uh, thinking in that direction because then it becomes part of the solution and, and not perceived as, as a problem. That's great, Emmett. Thank you so much. Thank all of you guys, Deloitte, um, Morris Manning, uh, NCR. You guys are all great members of ours. We appreciate what you do in the state of Georgia, how much you help Georgia businesses. Uh, I want to remind everybody on our virtual call that we'll reconvene on September 2nd for a discussion on freight and logistics. Uh, our DC flying is September 21st through the 24th. You can join us on our YouTube channel, visit our website, or download our new podcast, and continue uh, to do all that you can to help Georgia grow and send us your suggestions, your needs. Reach out to us for anything that you need at all here at the Georgia Chamber. Thank you to all of our guests for being with us and what you do. Uh, may God continue to bless the state of Georgia, and thank you all for being with us today.